0: Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in the illumination of your word that we come to understand life as it is, reality as it is, and the creation as you have created it. We understand who you are as a righteous God, a God who loves us in ways beyond our comprehension, who loved us in such a way that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We're thankful that he is the light of men and that he has come into the world to give us light that we might come to understand uh, who we are and our desperate need of salvation and our desperate need to be dependent upon you day in and day out, that we might learn to live, to think, as you would have us, that, you might, that we might fulfill the plan you have set forth for us, that you might be glorified before mankind and before the angels. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. Uh-oh. Something isn't. That one's working. There we go. Okay. Starting in verse 12, we have several snapshots. This is sort of one of those transition periods in Matthew's gospel that moves us from uh, the opening episodes of Jesus' ministry as he has uh, been baptized by John the Baptist and immediately uh, impelled or taken by the Holy Spirit, moved by the Holy Spirit, directed by the Holy Spirit to go into the wilderness for 40 days uh, of testing. We saw last time, as we looked at the Gospel of John in the first uh, three-plus chapters, down through at least four-four, that Matthew actually leaves out the first year of Jesus ministry that first year takes place mostly in uh in Judea mostly in the area around Jerusalem uh following his uh baptism by John the Baptist he goes into the wilderness for the temptation following the temptation he came back to John the Baptist where he uh, initially met several of his di- uh f- future disciples John and Andrew uh Philip, Nathaniel, Uh, these were first brought into Jesus' life at that time. From there, I pointed out that he has um, a ministry in Jerusalem. Uh, He goes to Cana of Galilee first with the wedding, then he went to Jerusalem for for, uh, uh, Passover. Uh, There he performed many signs and wonders. That brought him to the attention of Nicodemus, John chapter 3. John chapter 3 then leads him uh, into Judea where he and his disciples are baptizing. Uh, They're actually doing the work uh, along with John the Baptist and his disciples. John's ministry begins to decrease. Jesus' ministry increases. And then John the Baptist is arrested. That connects us back to what happens in Matthew 4, verse 12. We read, now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. This, as I said, takes place approximately a year after, uh, the events that we studied already in the first part of Matthew chapter four. Remember, Matthew, some of what Matthew has is, is organized chronologically. The first, uh, four and a half chapters are fairly chronological. The last part is more, Uh, uh, more of a topical arrangement as a transition into the Sermon on the Mount that begins in chapter 5. 5, 6, and 7 are the Sermon on the Mount. Then when we get to 8 and 9, we'll see another major topical arrangement. All of these events from 412 through the end of chapter uh, 11, all of those events happen during the first part of Jesus' ministry. They are roughly chronological, but they are arranged topically because Matthew is making certain points about Jesus' Messiahship. That's his focal point. Then we see the rejection by the religious leadership of Jesus' Messiahship in Matthew chapter 12 when they accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of, of Satan. That covers the first, sort of the first part, so it's arranged roughly chronologically, but within that chronology you have these, these topical arrangements because he is, uh, as the other gospel writers do, he's writing to prove a point, not to create a historical biography. Luke is the one gospel that is most consistently uh, chronological. John and John the Baptist and Jesus had overlapping ministries, as we learned from the first part of John chapter four. But John had run afoul of Herod Antipas. Here is a map of the uh, area of, uh, of Israel during the rule of Herod the Great and he, after his death its breakup to to his sons. The area in brown here is Galilee. This area down here is Perea. Perea is in the Transjordan. Transjordan means across. The preposition trans means across. It's across the Jordan from Jerusalem. So that area is called Transjordan. Initially, after uh, the Jordanians invaded and defeated uh, Israel in their war for independence in 1948, when they captured the area that became known as the West Bank previous to that from the end of world war 1 up until the uh Jewish war for independence uh the jordan was known as the kingdom of trans jordan but once they invaded across the jordan and captured that territory which no nation on earth recognized their right to never has recognized their right to uh that they changed their name to the kingdom of jordan they weren't just across the jordan anymore they took the territory, and that, and so now they were on both sides, both banks of the Jordan, so that the area that they had originally, which was east of the Jordan, uh, was uh, east the East Bank, and the a- area they captured illegally was known as the West Bank. So when we use the term West Bank, it's giving some sort of credibility to a political position. I got an Email interchange with uh, an archaeologist uh, a year or so ago because he was using a lot of politically correct terminology in his uh, uh, newsletter describing the West Bank and Palestinian territory and all of these things. And I said, You can't use that if you're a Bible believer, you're a conservative, you can't use those terms. He said, Well, All kinds of people get my emails. I can't offend them. I said, any term you use is going to offend somebody because every term is loaded with political implications. So stick with the biblical terms, Judea and Samaria, and get West Bank out of your vocabulary. So uh, this is the territory that's going to be a focus in this part of the chapter because this is the area that's under the rule of Herod Antipas, and that's whom we're talking about here because Herod Antipas had taken the wife of his half brother Philip, his wife was Herodias, and he took his wife for himself. It was an act of of uh, of adultery act of betrayal, and as a result of that, John the Baptist accused him of adultery well this didn 't sit well with Herod Antipas rulers don 't like to be challenged quite like that, and so <clears throat> that not only aggravated him, it really angered his wife. And so she pressured him, and eventually um, eventually uh, Herod arrested John the Baptist and put him into prison. Eventually uh, Herodias will uh, induce her daughter Salome to trick Herod into uh, offering her something, and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter and that leads to his death. So this anticipates, it. we'll get into that a little more when we get to the point of the death of John, but this is a point at which after about a year, towards the end of the first year of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist is put into into prison. Now, a lot of people talk about why Jesus now goes to Galilee. He goes to Galilee not so much, although some suggest this, because uh, he's avoiding the political pressure of Herod Antipas, uh, herod Antipas, as you can see from this map um, uh, from this map, controls both not only Perea but also Galilee, so he 's still under herod antipas's authority. actually, Jesus is headed north for uh, several different reasons god 's a multitasker uh, Jesus is going north a to fulfill prophecy. B, to get away from the hostility that's been developing from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he's going to go north. He's going to also uh, conduct his ministry in the north uh, among the villages and the towns of Galilee and a number of other things will take place there. This allows the the heat that's developing in the south in Jerusalem to simmer down because Jesus does not want to uh, be arrested before the proper time. So all of this is what is taking place. Now we read in verse 13 that Jesus left Nazareth. That too takes us back to a passage we studied last time in Luke 4, 16, we're told that when Jesus returned from the south, he went through Samaria, where John 4 tells us about his conversation with the Samaritan woman. And by the way, this last week, that was the story that was the focal point at the Good News Club. And uh, as as Mark told the story, and then as we break up later into groups, we have Uh, We have groups according to grades, and each grade has an adult that's assigned to that grade, and we have about 20 to 25 kids in each grade level. We have about 120 kids now who are coming to the Good News Club, and they're getting the gospel. Some of these kids are already pretty pretty knowledgeable and uh, have heard the gospel. When Mark was giving a little review, there was one cute little girl sitting down in front of me in the first grade, Every time he asked a review question, she just like, oh, call on me, call on me, call on me. You know, she's got it. Every answer was the same. Jesus is a son of God, and he came to die on the cross for our sins. (laughs) Whatever the question was, that's the answer. Pretty good for a six-year-old. She also happens to be the principal's daughter. Since my wife works for that principal, I always tell him how great his daughter is. So, and then there was another little boy who is in the third grade, I think, and he is, uh, he said, after hearing the lesson again, he says, hmm, goes to his teacher and says, so what you're telling me is there's another life after this one? So not sure that gave her a chance to give him the gospel again. Not sure if he's saved, but This is such a tremendous opportunity that we have to get the gospel to these kids. So that was the story of the Samaritan woman, gave a great gospel presentation there. Uh, So Jesus gives the gospel to her. She's saved. Then from there he headed to Nazareth. In Nazareth he read... In the synagogue, from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, stops in the middle of the second verse because the first verse down through the middle of the second verse focuses on the first advent, and he finish goes through the middle of the second verse, reading that in the in the synagogue, and then he closed rolled up the scroll, sat down, and said, "This is for," and he sits down to teach. So that's all very accurate as it's portrayed in the text. Sat down to teach and said, "This has been fulfilled in your sight today." So they eventually riot, try to kill him because he has he makes some further statements indicating the gospel will go to the Gentiles. They react in hostility to that and try to throw him off a cliff, and he just kind of uh, walks through the crowd and and gets away from them. So that is that's up to this particular point so at this point he leaves Nazareth that, that's connecting it to the other gospels and he comes to Capernaum which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali here's the map this is Lake Gennesar or Gennesaret as it's mentioned in the scriptures sometimes Lake Tiberius it's not a sea a sea is a salt water the same word though in Greek is used for sea or lake the lasso and when English translators translated it, they didn't understand the difference. So Christians for centuries have been misidentifying the Sea of Galilee, and it's Lake Genesar, Lake Tiberias. It's a lake, not a sea. Those of you who have been on a little boat trip with me on the on uh, Lake Gennesar, know that. In fact, next year on our trip, we're not going to stay in Tiberias anymore, which is located here. Jesus never went to Tiberias. It was a Roman city. Uh, we're going to stay just north of there where they have that Galilean fisherman, the old boat. Uh, there's a wonderful kibbutz there. I've stayed there two or three times, and we're going to stay there the next time. It's a much nicer place place to stay, but just north of there, oh, wait wait a minute, I wanted to show you this, he goes from Nazareth here to Capernaum, which is here on the just on the north northwest shore of Lake uh, Gennesaret, and this is Capernaum, or Capernaum, uh, the scripture says he leaves Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum and that it might be fulfilled what is spoken by Isaiah the prophet. This is a quote from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. And what we learn from this, looking at the map here, is this territory somewhere right along in here was a borderline between the territory given to Zebulun, the, the Israelite tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and their tribes bordered the uh, Lake Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee. Zebulun was to the south, and that included Nazareth, and <clears throat> Naphtali was uh, to the north. Now, the territory of Galilee was small. It's about 60 miles by 30 miles, but it had over 200 villages and towns, each with hundreds if not thousands uh, of people. So this is going to be a prime area for our Lord to go to to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. The area, since the time uh, before the deportation of the southern kingdom, before 586, uh, going back to the time of Isaiah, uh, the area became known as Galilee of the Gentiles. As you see, uh, Galilee is in the far north of Israel. It's bordered by Phoenicia to the north and west. It's bordered by Syria and Aramea. Uh, to the north and east. Here's Damascus up here, just to give you a, a focal point. And right here is Mount Hermon, the this northern point of Israel. And so often it is this area in the north that was subject to invasions by Gentile force after Gentile force in the ancient world, uh, the Arameans, the Assyrians, later the Babylonians. And so Early on even in the time of Isaiah, as quoted from as the quote from Isaiah nine uh, one and two points out, it's known as Galilee of the Gentiles. The Romans, too, had a strong presence here. Tiberius was a Roman city. Over here you see uh, just about four miles north of Nazareth you have the town of Sepphoris. Those who have gone to Israel with me, we've gone there uh, several times. This was a Roman city very close to Nazareth, probably a place where Joseph the builder, Joseph the carpenter worked Uh, many times and would take Jesus as Jesus would apprentice to his father would go there and work in a Roman city, Roman environment, uh, very likely. So this this is the area where they're they're going. Capernaum means the village of Nahum and was possibly named for the prophet Nahum. It could have been his uh, hometown. In Jesus' time in the first century, it's a flourishing, prosperous, commercial city. There were Gentiles who lived there as well as Jews, and, and this was also uh, as an indication of its commercial prosperity. It was a place where Matthew had his uh, tax office. This was his uh, job prior to his salvation. He was a tax collector. And this was a place where Peter came to live, and a place where our Lord also came to live. He, people don't think about this. He probably had owned a home and lived there in Capernaum. He was a property owner. How, how middle class? How capitalist? Here's an aerial shot of the area now. This is uh, the area of the uh, recovery at the time in the first century. It was probably much, much larger. Uh, but today you have uh, this this shot gives you a, a good overview of the area uh, around Capernaum over here you have it, the church of the beatitudes uh, this is the traditional but probably not historical site of the sermon on the mount but this is a general area where many events took place that Jesus would teach out on the plain or up on the mountain, uh, and this was the general area. In terms of archaeological remains, we have a second-century synagogue here that was built on the remains of the first-century synagogue, which is where Jesus would have attended and taught. Here we have a Roman Catholic church that's been built over the house of Peter. This is a little closer view of it. It's a, a tremendous historical site. You have a lot of basalt uh, walls here indicating a living various living quarters all in these areas, and you can see this extends back uh, quite a bit. And this is what is underneath that church. It is believed that this is uh, Peter's home, and this has a certain amount of historical uh, information behind it. Uh, as they uncovered this and dug down in there, they recognized that in this particular structure, unlike others, uh, in the first century, it went from being treated like a like a home or habitation where the walls were plastered. Rather than finding remains within there that would indicate domestic uh, d- d- domestic residence, they found uh, various other things that indicated that it was a site of public gathering. And so, and as well as inscriptional evidence that, and otherwise known as graffiti, that, uh, that from the early part of the second century at least, Christians were going to Capernaum and visiting this as a, as a site. Uh, and where they worship, there's indication there was a church there going back into the early second century and that this was actually Peter's home. So when I take a trip group to Israel, I say there are some things that are, they, that are historically accurate. The Temple Mount's the Temple Mount. That's a four. There are other things that, uh, like the, uh, <clears throat> Mount of Beatitudes that's probably not, it's tradition, but it's probably not the historical site. That's just, Legend or guesswork that's a one. this is probably a three point five to four for for peter's home they 've got some really solid evidence for that, and this is just sort of the uh, remains of the homes uh, in the area. The house where uh, that they think was peter's is also just slightly larger than than um, some of them indicating a little a higher level of prosperity he's a commercial fisherman he would have uh, would have done well. Matthew four, fourteen introduces the quote from Isaiah that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region uh, and shadow of death, light has dawned. Light and darkness are a significant uh, uh, metaphor and description in Scripture, and so I just want to take some time to review the doctrine of light this morning as it is so fundamental to our understanding of Scripture. First of all, light is one of the few attributes of God which is a- attributed specifically and holy to Him. Scripture says that God is holy. Scripture says God is love. These are specific declarative statements. Not that God isn't omniscient or omnipresent, but nowhere in Scripture does it say God is omnipresent. It's stated in other ways. But these three attributes, God is holy, God is love, and God is light, are specifically stated in the Scriptures. And light indicates his righteousness, his purity, that in him there is no darkness at all, as John says in first John one five God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That indicates his absolute uh, righteousness. First Timothy six sixteen talks about God as dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man can has seen or can see. that light is too brilliant for us as fallen creatures uh, to see. James one seventeen uses the same imagery, that God is the father of lights uh, within whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, literally. There's no darkness in him. He is absolute perfect righteousness. Second point is that <clears throat> light is used in Scripture to depict uh, a couple of different aspects of God. It indicates his pure righteousness, as well as, <clears throat> excuse me, his illumination of truth. It indicates the, his pure righteousness. There's no sin. There's no darkness in him, as we saw in John, first John one five. But also that he is, he reveals truth in darkness. So it has to do, in many cases, as it does in our passage in Matthew, uh, Matthew four. Uh, 15 and 16, dealing with God's illumination, his revelation of truth to us. We see this, both of these aspects in numerous passages. For example, Psalm 37, 6 emphasizes that aspect of righteousness. He shall bring forth your righteousness, the psalmist says, as the light, and your justice as the noonday, associating light with righteousness and justice. In Psalm thirty-six nine, we have a phrase I frequently quote, For with you is the fountain of light. In your light we see life. Now, when we look at that, there's two things that are associated with light there that come up several times. One is life. Yours, it, for with you, is the fountain of life. The life of God is also light. This is the same thing that John says regarding Jesus in the first chapter of John. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. It's revelatory. And it is in God's light, his brilliant light, his illumination, that we are able to understand other things. We don't don't have ultimate understanding in terms of rationalism or empiricism. Ultimate understanding comes from revelation This exposes truth to us so that we can then think clearly and properly understand and interpret our experiences, or in other words, rational thought is guided and directed ultimately by God's revelation and our understanding and interpretation of empirical things is also ultimately determined by God's revelation. That becomes the presupposition or the assumption that precedes all other knowledge. In Psalm 43, 3, uh, the psalmist says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. See how light is connected to revelation there? It is God's perfect light, its perfect truth that, uh, is illuminated through His, His, the function of light. Let them lead me. That light gives us guidance and direction. This is seen again in Psalm 119, 105, a phrase or a verse that is familiar to most of us. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So that God's illumination is not just out there somewhere uh, functioning independently of things. It is localized in his word. It is God's word that illuminates the path of our life, illuminates our thinking. Psalm 119.130 says the entrance of your word gives light. That, that you and I cannot understand life and light, can, cannot understand life or the direction of life without the light of God's word. That's why we stress this so much uh, here is because it is the word of God that illuminates our thinking. And apart from that, we are walking in darkness. A third thing we see in Scripture is that when the writer of the Gospel of John speaks of Jesus as the logos, the Word of God, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he goes on to describe the logos of God, the Word of God, as being the source of life and the light of the world." Uh, two great passages on this come in the first chapter of John and again in the third chapter of John following the the, the, the famous or well-known conversation with Nicodemus and, of course, John three sixteen through 18. Following that, we, he returns back to this theme of light and life. John 1, 4, John says, In him, that is in the logos, in Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. His light life itself had an illuminating aspect to it. It reveals to us the Father, as he will go on to say in John one eighteen. In John one five he says, The light shines in the darkness, that is the darkness of the world. But the darkness did not comprehend it. Then we're told in verse 7, This man, John the Baptist, came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through through him might believe. He, that is John the Baptist, was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, meaning Jesus, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So that here we have a clear statement of common grace, that is, through the incarnation, Jesus illuminates every man to fundamental general truth about God and the need for salvation. This goes along with Romans one eighteen and 19, that everyone knows that God exists, for this knowledge is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. In John 3, chapter 3, following the gospel presentation to Nicodemus, John the writer comes back, I think by this time, it's hard to tell when Jesus stops talking and John starts talking, but I think by this time John is talking and he says, this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, that is Jesus, and men love darkness, negative volition, they did not want the truth, men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil, they're committed to self-justification, Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness in Paul's terminology. They hate the light and they do not want to come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. In fact, what they want to do is extinguish the light. We see that a lot in our culture today as the influence of biblical Christianity gets less and less and as pagan thought grows more and more, they're coming out of the closet and expressing their hostility towards Christianity and Christian traditions more and more. And we will see within the next 10 years things that we never imagined, as we are seeing today things we did not imagine 10 years ago. And the only thing that's going to strengthen us and fortify us for what is coming is the Word of God. Because when we get to a point where we, as many believers before us, go through overt persecution for our faith in Christ, the only thing that's going to sustain us when we possibly could lose everything that we have is going to be the one thing we can never lose, and that is the knowledge of God's Word that's in our soul and our understanding of His promises that sustain us because that's what gives us hope, that no matter how dark things might appear, God always gives us hope that sustains us through his word. John goes on to say in verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light. If you are a believer, your focal point should be to come to the light, to learn the word of God so that it may expose the wrong that is in your thinking and that it may help you understand how to live rightly before God. Uh, he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Fourth thing that we see is that Jesus referred to himself as the light of the world, referred to himself as the light of the world in passages such as John eight twelve. We read then, uh, "'Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light.'" Now, we're told in verse 20 of this chapter that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury while he was teaching in the temple. The temple treasury is in the outer court of the temple, uh, around the court of the women. And Jesus came to that place in John 8. At the end of the period of the Feast of the Tabernacles, during the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Jew, the Jews would celebrate what they call the Illumination of the Temple, and they would fill the courtyard of the women with, uh, ver- with menorahs. And here I have a photo uh, looking through the menorah. You can see the Al Aqsa Mosque, that gray dome in the background, looking at the Temple Mount. And this is a a. Uh, Reconstruction of the golden menorah, which is not, that's just a reproduction that has been uh, built in order to put, that would go into a new temple. Uh, they would fill the, uh, they would fill the temple uh, courtyard with candelabra, and for a week this would illuminate, send forth a tremendous uh, stream of light out into the darkness surrounding the temple. Uh, It was designed to commemorate the pillar of fire that illuminated the way of Israel in the wilderness wanderings under Moses. And at the conclusion of the Feast of the Temple, as the menorah are being extinguished, then Jesus walks onto the Temple precinct and says, I am the light of the world. He is the one that provides true light in the midst of darkness in john nine five again he proclaimed this, "I am the light of the world," and also in John eleven nine that he is the light of the world. That light indicates divine revelation, providing direction, guidance, and knowledge for people, as we see in passages like Romans 2.19, that <clears throat> it is a light to those who are in darkness. In Second Corinthians 4.6, it provides the light of the knowledge of the glory of God uh, in John 1.18, we're told that Jesus is the one who expresses this most fully, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, has exegeted him. Literally, exegeto is the verb. He's the one who has explained the Father. So his role is to illuminate us as to who God is. He is the one who gives light to believers, point number Number six, I went past that quickly. Ephesians five thirteen and fourteen were told, but all things that are exposed—it's the light that exposes uh, error and sin. All things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, "Awake, you who sleep; arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light." Jesus is the source of illumination for us. We are also called. Sons of light, point number seven. Believers are called sons of light in various passages. We're sons of light because that becomes part of our new nature as members of the royal family of God. In Luke 16, 8, John twelve thirty six it references believers as sons of light. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Since we are sons of light, we are to live a certain way. How do you think believers are to live? We're to live in a way that illuminates the world around us on the basis of truth. Ephesians 5, 8 says, We were once darkness positionally, Now we are positionally light in the Lord. Therefore, because we are positionally sons of light, we are to live like sons of light. That's the command, walk as children of light. See, sometimes when we're living our life for ourselves and we're living in carnality, living on the sin nature, we're not only, we're children of light, but we're walking in darkness. But Paul says we are not to walk in darkness, but we are to walk as children of light. And this connects over to the same imagery in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Both passages talk about the Christian walk in the light. Now, in Ephesians 5, 8, a lot of people ask the question, well, how do you get the connection of the filling by the Spirit in Ephesians five eighteen? With confession of sin in First John one nine, because Ephesians five eighteen doesn't mention confession, first John one nine doesn't mention the Spirit. How do you connect those? It goes back to the context. Ephesians five eight says that we're to walk as children of light. First John one is talking about walking as children of light. Those who are children of light confess their sins when they shift from walking in darkness to walking in the light. And Those who are walking in the light in Ephesians 5 are those who are filled by means of the Spirit. When we're not walking in the light, we're not being filled by the Spirit. So when we put these things together, we understand that confession is the means of recovery when we stop walking like children of light and start walking in darkness. Therefore, point number eight, Christians... By virtue of their position as receptors or receivers of revelation are also light, and we are to function as light. Matthew five fourteen and 16 say that we are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, so we are to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So point number nine, believers are to put on the armor of light, that is, The armor or protection that comes from light or divine revelation. When we study God's word, it gives us the protection we need to live in the midst of a dark and pagan world. Only from the word of God do we receive the armor of light. And that protects us. Uh, Romans Uh, 13.12 says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, quit walking in the darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. This is a command that we are to clothe ourselves in the armor of light. And then last point in the doctrine is that we need to realize that Satan is the master counterfeiter. He counterfeits this light and masquerades as an angel or messenger of light. Uh, 2 Corinthians eleven four, Paul says, Satan transforms himself into an angel of light as do his demons. So the only way we can have discernment as to what is true light and what is the false light is to know the word of God. And so Jesus came in that first appearance into Galilee. And it is described as a light shining in darkness, illuminating the people who sat in darkness. And this is the same ministry today. Through the word of God, both the living word, the logos, and the written word, we can know truth. And that truth is what enables us to live life as in the world on the basis of reality so that we can experience the fullness of life that God has given to us. Next time, we'll come back and we'll look at the remaining snapshots in chapter 4, uh, chapter four in um, in preparation for our study of the Sermon on the Mount, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word to illuminate us, that we have Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who came into the world to bring light, and that in his light we see light, that he is... Uh, the one who has come to reveal you to us. And in that, we come to understand that you are perfectly righteous and that our righteousness does not measure up. Our righteousness, as Isaiah said, is like filthy rags and that it even the best that we do has no value in your sight. But yet he who knew no sin became sin for us that your righteousness might be given to us. And, Father, we're so thankful for your grace in providing us with the Savior uh, that, on the basis of his work on the cross, uh, given to us as a free gift, that we can have eternal life, and that life comes simply by accepting or believing in Jesus as our Savior. Father, we pray that if there 's anyone here today that 's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would make this sure and certain. Jesus died for your sins, he paid the penalty for your sins, so that Uh, You don't have to worry about uh, payment for those sins, for that has been accomplished on the cross already. The issue for you is simply to trust in Christ, and all your sins are forgiven. No sin is forgotten. No sin is left out. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty. Though our sins be as scarlet, we are now white as snow. And God has forgiven us our sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with these truths and challenge each believer here with the importance of your word, that they must constantly be exposed to the light of your word, that we may learn to think on the basis of your truth and on the basis of your creation and your reality. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.